Hi, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. We think that this is a new horizon, and so we're just in the very beginning stages of exploring how these electronic devices might uh, help us understand human behavior, help us modify human behavior, and ultimately contribute to better health outcomes. That was Dr. Robert Kaplan, Director of the Office of Behavioral and Social Sciences Research at the National Institutes of Health. In this podcast, we'll be talking with him and Dr. Barbara Berry, a research scientist with Northeastern University's Relational Agents Group, about the themes Dr. Kaplan just mentioned. This podcast is presented as part of the Translational Medicine Initiative, a partnership between the New York Academy of Sciences and the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation to foster the translation of basic science discoveries into improved clinical health care. Find out more about this initiative at nyas.org transmed. That's T-R-A-N-S-M-E-D. Okay, let's get started. Dr. Kaplan, can you please introduce the research your group is doing with technology and healthy behavior motivation? Well, we're, we're very interested in a wide range of behavioral factors that are associated with early death or um, loss of, of function or quality of life. There's a substantial literature that shows that our habits, like smoking cigarettes, our dietary behaviors, but also our risk-taking um, might contribute substantially to uh, loss, of, loss of life. And we think that these new technologies uh, might help us not only understand these behaviors, but also help us modify them. How so? Well, just for example, um, we, in the research sense, uh, we have always brought people to the laboratory to study them. But we know that environment has a big influence on, on people and what they do. So instead of bringing people to the laboratory, we can actually bring the laboratory to people with these new electronic devices. So for example, we might be much better able to characterize uh, factors in the environment that influence physical activity, that influence our eating behavior, perhaps smoking, and and a variety of other uh, behaviors that might ultimately impact on our health. Could you please give some examples? What kind of technology are you using and how does it help? We we look at, at couple of big categories of uh, technologies. So um, there's sensors. Uh, sensors are everywhere. You, uh, they're very inexpensive um, and they can detect movement. Uh, they can detect a variety of, uh, of chemical exposures. And in fact, these sensors now are becoming miniaturized so that you can have implantable uh, in- sensors that might live within the body for a period of up to 30 days and, and sed- send signals. Um, we also have monitors. Uh, monitors are um, uh, little devices like wireless accelerometers, um, little devices that can detect whether or not we're moving and moving quickly and exercising. But also monitors can uh, provide continuous evaluations of our blood, our blood pressure or the blood glucose. And then finally, we have mobile phones. And mobile phones are probably the, the most important uh, set of devices that we currently have. So mobile phones allow us not only to communicate, but to receive messages. Uh, it allows uh, people to be prompted uh, to fill out a questionnaire, give a response uh, about what they're doing, but also it might prompt them to engage in certain behaviors or not engage in certain behaviors. There are a variety of different ways that these are being used. So for example, there's SMS messaging that is now commonly used to prompt people uh, to, to record behaviors and sometimes I give them uh, a little bit of encouragement to 
stop smoking cigarettes or, or not <laughs> to resist urges to smoke cigarettes. There are a variety of techniques that are available to help people not only evaluate what they're eating, but to modify their eating behavior. So we've been quite intrigued by uh, some of these new technologies. Just as an example, there are applications for the iPhone now that will allow you to take a picture of a plate of food. And the linkage to, a, to software allows you to estimate the protein, carbohydrate, and fat content of that meal. Um, now, we know that the, these um, methodologies are quite imperfect, but we also know that the engineering community is quite active in iterating these uh, these methods so that within a few years we think they'll be quite accurate. And I think it's worth saying that you know for people like us that study uh, the epidemiology of, of uh, problems like heart disease, this is a major breakthrough. Um, for years we've learned about dietary behavior by asking people what they ate in the last 24 hours or the 24-hour diet dietary recall. And we know that these methodologies are very prone to error. So uh, not only because that people have difficulty remembering what they ate in the last 24 hours, but also because you're sampling one one 24-hour period within many days in a person's life. So now with these new technologies, we can ask people to continually take pictures of plates of food, and it allows us to capture uh, much, much more data and probably to get estimates of eating behavior that are m much more accurate than they used to be. Speaking of methodology, you've written about the challenge of designing studies to measure the efficacy of these technology-based interventions. Could you discuss that, please? Well, that's exactly right, and that's, that's where we're going with a lot of this. So what we've realized is that these new methods um, and the, these new devices also come with a lot of challenges, and there are many, many different challenges that we face. One of the most important ones is that we're not used to having this much information. So most of the statistical methodologies that we've learned as scientists are designed for, for relatively small samples. And now we're going to have not hundreds of data points, but really hundreds of millions of data points. So we have this problem of big data, a continuous flows of, of important information, but we don't know how to store it. We have to deal with protecting the privacy of the people uh, who, who are providing the information. And then we have to discover whole new methods for analyzing these masses of information. So that, that's one direction that we're going. Another set, of, uh, another set of issues have to do with the experimental designs for evaluating these methods. So historically, we've, um, we've evaluated interventions. So for example, if we have an intervention that's designed to get people to reduce their tobacco consumption or reduce their food consumption, we have evaluated the intervention using uh, the, the randomized clinical trial where people are randomly assigned to a treatment or a control group and they evaluated. One of the problems that we're encountering is that the electronics industry is moving so quickly that by the time we can complete one of these evaluations, in fact, the, method, the intervention method is no longer used. And in fact, people might not want to continue using these methods for long periods of time because that the intervention technologies are moving so quickly. So we are challenged with develop, uh, developing whole new approaches to research methodology that will allow us to evaluate these moving targets. Could you describe some of them, please? Well, we're thinking about a couple different things. One is that, that with the sort of mobile health revolution, um, we have the opportunities to study much larger groups of people. And so we might do shorter term trials, but 
increase the power of these trials by putting more people into them. So there are lots of people that are relatively easily accessible through uh, through text messaging or through uh, through Facebook connections or uh, other uh, media technologies. And this allows us uh, to enroll lots and lots of people in a trial so that the accuracy of the trial might be better just because that we are able to study so many more people. But with regard to the change over time problem, this is a real challenge for us and, and there's some, some really innovative thinking that's, that's taking place. So for example, uh, you might be able to randomly assign people to, um, to a, a weight modification program with the new technology versus a control group. Uh, but then six months later, we might then randomly assign people to uh, the last technology for weight change versus the new one that's just come on. And six months later, we might, uh, again, um, have yet the latest technology which we compare to the technology one stage before it. So it's a rolling experimental design that allows a lot of comparisons over the, over the course of, uh, of time as the technology changes. But I should say that these are all on the drawing board now. These are uh, ideas that are starting to surface in response to this challenge of how we evaluate these new technologies. It is also worth saying that um, you know traditional scientists at the NIH believe that you have to have a traditional randomized experimental trial to evaluate whether a new technology works. And we've been somewhat disappointed that when we looked at the literature, there are relatively few studies that um, that have used these methodologies to evaluate the benefits of the electronic technologies. So this remains a big challenge. We also know that some of the studies that have been done using, um, using more traditional evaluation methodologies have failed to show that, uh, that electronic devices um, have the impact that, that the developers expect them to. Do you think that this is due to the interventions actually not being useful or to the trials failing to accurately reflect reality? You know, I think it has to do with something else. And one of the ideas that's been emerging is that people put too much emphasis on the electronic devices and the software. And now what we're coming to realize is that the real way to have impact is in understanding the interface between the person and the device. So that context is very important. If you think of just a lot of problems, not necessarily with uh, mobile health technologies, but you know, the big challenge we have, for example, in getting physicians to use electronic medical records uh, this is something that's really taking off, and it, of course it's taken off uh, more rapidly in, in some other countries. Um, the UK, for example, has, has pretty close to universal use of the electronic health record now. But what, what we've learned is that uh, electronic health records are terrific for physician practices and they're good for patients, but it's very hard to get uh, physicians to use them and medical practices to use them. Once they get into it, in fact, very few people are interested in turning back. And I think the early days when there was a lot of, of resistance to use, uh, using these um, electronic health records, that people had tried to implement them without understanding that enough about the context of the practices they were um, being rolled out into. So you have to determine how it affects the workflow, how it affects um, the uh, interface between the physician and the patient, how it affects the interface between the physician and the staff and a variety of other variables. Again, I think the real issue is that uh, that studying and understanding the interface between the machines and the people is really important and can't be overlooked. Thank you so much. On that note, we're going to segue to Dr. Berry, 
whose work with narrative and artificial intelligence entities, called agents, focuses on ways to create constructive interfaces between patients and technology through the use of language. Dr. Berry, can you please explain a little bit about just what this means? Ah, so I'm a research scientist in a group called the Relational Agents Group um, at Northeastern University. It's within the computer science department. And I was brought into the group specifically to think about how computer agents can be uh, can elicit narratives from users and can also understand narratives that users tell to the agent in, 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 you know, in the ways that we can now with how artificial intelligence works, um, in service of healthcare, in service of people understanding issues for their own health, in service of health behavior change, and in service of people just getting better health education. A lot of the work within the group that I'm in now historically has been around low health literacy. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm working on now. You can think about me as the person who thinks about how the agent can be a good story listener, uh, asks people questions about their everyday life so that people can respond in terms of, um, you know, very colloquial language about how we live, and, um, and how that agent can record and collect those stories. And then through analyzing those, we can, we can learn a little bit more about the user, um, their emotions, their moods, what their concerns are, and that sort of thing. And could you please give some examples of ways in which agents relate to patients and to what ends? You could think about it as a computer character having a dialogue with you and asking you questions. So one example of the project that I'm working on in this group is for preconception care for young African-American women. The agent asks them questions and it does risk assessment and it gives them homework and things like that. And so part of how the, the narrative storytelling aspect is working in that system is that we are... When somebody, for example, sets a goal for nutrition, like when I go out, I'm going to eat healthy next week. I'm going to make good healthy choices when I eat out. <laughs> they tell that to the agent. They make a commitment. They say, that's what I'm going to do. They click, yes, that's my goal. Then when they come back a few days later, the agent says, how is that going? You know, or, or, when you're eating out, you know, how's it going? And the person might say, you know what, it's going really well. They might hit like it's going really well or it's not going so well. They say it's not going so well. The agent can do a little bit of motivational interviewing, figure out what the problem might be, help them with barriers. But if they say yes, the agent says, hmm, do you want to tell me what happened? Where were you? What, what was the sort of, what was the challenge that you had? And what did you do? You know, three simple things. Where, where were you? You know, I was at a buffet. Oh, you know, what was challenging? Everybody around me was eating dessert first, right? <laughs> like, like, what did you do? I texted my friend and said, like, I'm going to eat healthy. And my friend texted back and said, you do it, you know? And so we're gathering all these little, you know, bits of information, tiny little stories, if you will, about how people are changing their own health behavior and reinforcing that for them when they're, when they're, when they're contributing these stories. It's, it's saying like, yes, I'm being active. Yes, I'm doing that. I'm sharing it with someone else. And we're getting some interesting feedback about, you know, which, which demographics might have different kinds of techniques for health behavior change. What works for someone who's, you know, 15 and trying to deal with, you know, eating healthier might be different from someone who's, you know, 60, you know, somebody living in one place versus another place, income, there are all kinds of things that can affect that. So that's one example of, you know, eliciting stories from users to help them reflect on their own goals for their, for better health. Um, and also kind of collectively help a community and help research understand how that's happening. So the data gathering benefits of this for the epidemiology research community are clear, but for the patient, what's the upside? 
why not just talk to a friend? Oh, that, that's such an interesting question. So there, there are some really basic things about computer agents that aren't true for people. So um, agents never get tired. <laughs> they just don't, right? As long as you have electricity you're in, you know, and your computer agent is there, um, which is a little bit of a barrier. You need some equipment, right? Um, the second piece of that is that agents, you know, depending on how they're, how, how they're designed and we design them this way, are not judgmental. You know, if you, if you, you know, have told somebody that you're not going to eat, you know, sugary sweets for breakfast, you know, and you tell them for the 15th time in a week, you know, they might just be like, oh my God, just stop it. You know, whereas an agent is like, oh, that's very interesting. Like, let's think about that scenario, right? <laughs> or help them shift off to maybe think about another goal. So the, the agents that we build for healthcare, they're all informed by um, practitioners. So the, the dialogue that the agent is talking, is using to talk to the person, all of the things that the agent says are built by, you know, nurses, healthcare workers, doctors, look at those scripts and say, you know what, if we really want to go after this kind of health behavior change and this kind of intervention, what should the agent say? And how should it say it? And what kind of information should it ask for? And what kind of information should it give back? So that's another sort of piece where the agents can be, um, I think people can feel a little bit more like, you know, you can bug an agent, you know, 52 times a day if you want, you know, it's not going to get upset at you, you know, or at least we haven't done any research about how if it got upset at you, it might, it might work or not. Um, and then the other thing that I think is really um, interesting about agents too is that they can because I mean computers are good at tailoring things right at shifting having six different ways to deliver information to someone um, they have infinite patience so say for example you're giving somebody a consent form to read right I don't know if people out there have had this kind of experience but you know you go through a consent form it can be really you know confusing in a lot of medical language in there you know, an agent can relentlessly go through that and pe people don't feel embarrassed asking an agent the same question four times. And the agent can answer it in four different ways. So I think especially in healthcare where there's a lot of, you know, pressure to do things efficiently and quickly and kindly with patient satisfaction, this idea of putting a virtual agent that a person can interact with maybe before and then after an interaction with the provider it can really help coach the person and answer a lot of their questions so that they're a little more like primed to go in and talk to maybe their, their healthcare professional. Speaking of healthcare professionals, what kind of role might an agent play in the doctor-patient relationship? So in general, um, one thing that I think is an interesting space that I'll probably talk a little bit about um, at the conference is this idea of an agent being able to um, hold questions that a patient might have or from a provider, have a provider be able to enter questions that an agent can then present to the patient as like topics to talk about. So an agent just being able to manage a list of topics between a provider and a patient, because, you know, the provider's not there all the time. You know, maybe it's like you're going to see them on Wednesday and Monday. You're like, oh, I want to remember to ask them about the side effects of this medication. You know, to just be able to pop that onto a list. And then when you see the provider, just to have, you know, click on the agent. The agent can say, like, agent can say, like here's the list of things that you wanted to discuss and can, ch and can check them off with you. So the, this idea of the agent as a facilitator of communication, I think, is also an, uh, an interesting space. We just heard about the challenges of studying the efficacy of technology interventions in behavior. How does your group try and address this? I'm most comfortable if it's assessed in multiple ways. So, I mean, I'm, 
I'm not a fan of the like the hard line quant qual divide. Um, so typically in the in the group that I'm in now, and one reason that I, I joined the um, relational agents group at Northeastern is because before projects are put into a randomized controlled trial with a hospital, um, we do a lot of design testing. So we do background research, design research, which is one of my specialties, talking to people, sort of understanding what they think about the issues involved in the healthcare topic that we're looking at, what kinds of technologies that those demographics are comfortable with, how they interact, what their access is, and then designing prototypes and then really testing those prototypes in our lab and also out in the wild in people's houses, you know, in their everyday life to just see if we mock this up a little bit, is it something that makes sense to people? How do they use it? What's their adoption rate? And just, you know, how do they consider it? If you ask them, you know, would you like to keep it or, you know, can I take it away? <laughs> you know, if they're like, take it away, like, you know, okay. If they're like, no, no, I'd like to keep this. I, you know, I want to look at how many steps a day, you know, I've taken and be able to track, you know, my exercise this easily with some feedback and with goal setting by this agent, right? So that's typically um, the, the sort of the, the design phase. And then once that's all debugged, um, most if not all of the projects in this group go into a randomized controlled trial in a hospital. And then we get feedback that's about, you know, efficacy. We get feedback about patient satisfaction. And in all of those, we get, you know, we have questionnaires. We look at um, standardized measures. And then we also, with a subset of that, we always do um, semi-structured interviews for follow-up. And I think that, I think that is really, you know, a good, uh, sort of a good way to go to get, get a whole picture because it's easy to get removed when you just you put up the stats for efficacy. It's easy to get removed from the patient experience and the human experience and how that might be working and whether or not that's gonna, it, those, those numbers for efficacy are going to be something that's long-term. And then at the same time, you don't just want to get people self-report like, this is great, and then it doesn't work. <laughs> right? So um, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of that, even though it can be a little more you know, expensive, to be honest. Um, and then the other thing that's happening through technology is we're just able to collect larger data sets for, from people remotely. So we are using, you know, Mechanical Turk and on different kinds of platforms to be able to have these agents interact with, you know, people over the course of, say, like a year and, um, get, a and get a lot of data and then do some data mining on that and just see what behaviors are like over time. Is there anything you'd like to add? Well, I think, um, I think one thing that I would like to get in, this just gets back to the narrative um, work a little bit, is that I, just, I think it's an exciting time in, um, in the use of, um, of narrative in healthcare in general. So in the last maybe three or four years, this, the topic is coming up more now. I mean, there's a, there's a program at Columbia about narrative medicine. Um, I'm, when I'm looking at the psychology literature and collaborating with people, people are starting to think about interventions for youth where the way that they tell a narrative about themselves and their life, you can coach them to tell the, those narratives in ways that can um, help them have fewer recurrences of depression. So there are these interesting ways um, in which narrative is, is coming up in healthcare and mental health care. And at the same time, computers are getting better at understanding it. You know, and so I think, um, and a lot of that is because collective intelligence, being able to do, you know, collection of a lot of data from people. Um, so I think that, I don't know, I feel like this is a very interesting time. And in the next five years, we're going to start to see um, just a lot of good research 
So that, I guess that's the last thing that I want to say, other than that I'm looking forward to the conference. Thanks. Seriously, guys, the conference is going to be fascinating. To learn more about emerging digital technologies in clinical care from these experts and some of their colleagues, please join us at a conference taking place at the New York Academy of Sciences on Friday, March 22nd. For detailed information and to register, visit nyas.org slash digital health. The conference will also be simulcast via webinar. This conference is jointly presented by the New York State Department of Health AIDS Institute, the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation, and the New York Academy of Sciences. Physicians may earn up to six CME credits by attending this live activity in person. Okay, that's it for this Science in the City podcast. Thanks for listening.